It's Thursday, December 8th, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Coke Runyon. And tonight we'll discuss the forthcoming second edition of the Book of Solomon's Magic, which we first published in 1996, following the release of our video, The Magic of Solomon, in the same year. It is fair to say that the video and the book launched a revival of Solomonic ceremonial magic, which is still going strong in the 21st century. We followed up with more books and films, but continued to reprint the original book for 26 years without updating or revision. We continued to promise a new edition, but it was too easy to just insert addendums in the original, which continued to sell very well, even though it was outdated. Now we have finally gotten the new 300-page hardcover second edition of Solomon's Magic ready to go to print. Updated with new equipment designs, authentic operational log entries, exorcism accounts, essays, and original art. We expect it to be available by February of 2023, so watch for it. Now, getting on into this, what I'm going to do is, number one, I'm going to ask if uh, uh, two of our listeners who have expressed interest in this show, and one of them is the, is the green man. He's an ant, and the green man said that... He, he emailed us and he said, "Oh, you're 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 doing too many reruns. When are you going to do it? When are you going to do a new show?" And of course, I emailed back and said, "Well, we've been working on this on the Solomon's Magic book, and, and now we finally got it ready to go to print. So we'll 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 do a new show show for you on the eighth. And so basically, what I'm going to do, and then the the other the other fellow was guy that that just uh, that just emailed me today, and I was Tony, and and he was interested in in uh, in the new the new show. Uh, so let's start off with um, doing the front matter for the new book. Now you remember there was a pronouncement in the beginning of the of the old uh, of the old seventh ray, and that was. The pronouncement said, in the year 1969, I went through a near-death experience that brought on an altered state of consciousness during which I rediscovered a lost secret of Western ritual magic. I learned how to summon the 72 spirits of King Solomon's legendary brass vessel to visible appearance in the dark mirror of the Triangle of Art. This book and our accompanying video, The Magic of Solomon, demonstrate and properly teach the secret method for the first time. Inspired by the rediscovery of this goetic method of practice, I went further to enable myself to recover the technique of angelic crystal invocation from the ancient book Amadel. I was then led to rectify the essential Lamegaton subsystem with the 72 angels of the Shemihan Farash and link them to the 72 demonic counterparts in the Goetia. Now, this produced a spiritually balanced, theoretically elegant, and astrologically co coordinated scheme of practice that was compatible with modern theories of Jungian psychology. Students 
who have struggled for years to visualize these entities and to make sense of the confused and even contradictory instructions in the Omegaton will now be delighted to finally discover operative methods that really work within a theoretical framework that emulates peccable celestial models of the Renaissance Magi. Newcomers, starting with our system, may very well wonder, what was difficult about all this in the first place? If this is so, then I have succeeded in my task, and so might it be. Signed, Magister Fabian with my seal. Now, I'm going to read the author's preface to the 2022 hardcover edition. This hardcover version of our modern ceremonial magic classic has been a long time coming. After 25 years in soft cover, we are finally issuing a hardbound library edition. Many of our readers will recall the 1996 advent of our book following the release of our video documentary, The Magic of Solomon. Both the film and the book were were created in response to the 1988 book, Modern Magic, by the late Donald Michael Craig. Now, our methods and techniques would have remained private, not quite secret, if Craig had not revealed them in, this, in his book. But he did, and thus he compelled us to respond. Our film and our book have been so popular that this, at this juncture, we would dedicate this library edition to Donald posthumously if such an award could be considered an honor rather than an insult. In most respects, this second edition remains true to the original, along with editions such as my 1977 Magic and Hypnosis essay. I have incorporated this into the text and the, with various addendums that we have added to the reprints of the book over the years. Now, if you are a newcomer to this book, and especially if you are predisposed to be critical of its theory and method, that's the, that's the uh, hypnotic uh, um, visual reflection method, I recommend that you read Magic and Hypnosis before you deal with the main text. I have also added illustrations of tools, zero light, temple furniture, the double slat altar, updated the magical alphabet, and added the Hermetic Yoga Master Ritual. After the years, we have collected numerous references confirming our theories and techniques. For most of these, I have used chapter endnotes. I have explained the biography in, I have explained the bibliography to, I expanded the bibliography to include works of, and authors cited in the additional material. In the original soft cover version of the book, of Solomon's Magic, I edited The Conjurations of the Galatia, Stone Manuscript 2731, leaving out those which intimidated the spirits with the curse of chains, etc. Because of our our patron deities were Baal and Astarte, uh, Baal and Asheroth, we felt such coercion was inappropriate. We even created an apology for the stern comments and commands in the first conjuration. However, many of the Goetic spirits are not as friendly or venerable as Baal and Astarte, and we do list them all. Since 1996, I have had to perform two exorcisms, one of which I will recount in this second edition. 
This has prompted me to reinstate the stronger conjurations, so we now have a more complete Galatia. We have also added operational log accounts and receiver sketches on several of the Goetic spirits. We have revised the classic elemental prayers and include them with the archangel invocations where they belong. We have also added a direct facsimile of the first Galatia conjuration from the original manuscript. Now, this document proves that Elizabethan magicians were aware that Jehovah was not the Most High God. We are publishing a detailed reproduction of Peter Smart's magic mirror on a stand, proving that it is exactly that. We are showing a restored version of the seldom-seen Ostia Medallion from the second century, showing Hecate and King Solomon, connecting ceremonial magic with Solomonic, Solomonic magic with witchcraft. Finally, we show a very rare photo of Edward Kelly's black obsidian shrine mirror in the British Museum. All considered, we think it's fair to say that the Book of Solomon's Magic is finally in its complete and perfected form. And we hope all sincere students of the art magical will make good use of it. And it's signed, very honored, Frater Fabian, ORC, Rivendell Hermitage and Temple, Silverado, California, 2022. Now, I want to read this conjuration manuscript, Sloan 2731, our original Lamegaton manuscript. And we've got a beautiful facsimile of it. In fact, you can actually read the facsimile, a uh, beautiful facsimile of the Elizabethan script. But I, I want to read the script and the translation and the commentary. This conjuration is the work of an Elizabethan Neoplatonic magician who seems to have been a Gnostic Christian. As we have already established, the Goetia's Kabbalah is essentially Christian, Dionysian, and Dante-esque, not Hebrew. And its spirits and angels answer to a higher god, El, of the Elohim, or Elion, than Jehovah's YHVH. At least in the higher worlds of the tree of life, Jehovah is relegated to the four elements of the Shia. Malkuth of the physical world, functions as the demiurge the Gnostic Christians considered him to be. And a following is a transcription from the manuscript. I invoke and conjure you, spirit and, and being with the power armed from the supreme majesty, I strongly command you by Barlamensis, Baldesiensis, Palmanchi, and Apollo Rosades, and the most powerful princes, Geneo and Leocades, ministers of the Tartarian Sea, chief princes of the seat of Apologia in the ninth region. I exercise and powerfully command you, Spirit in, by him that who said the, said the word and it was done, and by all the holy and most glorious names of the most holy and true God, and by those his most holy and truly names, Adonai El, Elohim, Elohe, Sabaoth, Elion, Esarche, Yah, Tetragrammaton, Sadai, that you forthwith appear and show yourselves unto me here before this circle in fair and human shape without any deformity or ugly shape. And forthwith, without delay, do ye come from all parts of the world 
and make rational answers unto all things I shall ask of you. And come ye pleasable, visibly, and affably without delay, manifesting that which I desire, being conjured by the especial and eternal living and true God, Elioran. I conjure you, and by the name of the eternal living God, I conjure you, by the name of the king which bears rule over you, wherewith you come without tarrying and fulfill my desires and commands and persist unto the end and according to my intentions. And I conjure you by him whose name all creatures are obedient and by this ineffable name Tetragrammaton Jehovah, which being heard the elements are overthrown, the air is shaken, the sea runneth back, fire is quenched, the earth trembleth, and all the hosts of celestials, terrestrials, and infernals do tremble and are confounded together, that you visibly and affably speak unto me in a clear voice, intelligible, and without ambiguity and delay. And therefore, come in the name of Adonai, Zebaoth, Adonai, Emiotum, come ye, come ye, stay ye, hasten, Adonai, Shaddai, King of Kings, commands you. Now, if you were listening carefully, you will realize that at the beginning of the conjuration, the magician is conjuring the Most High God, El, Elion. And then finally, when he gets down toward the end of the conjuration, he's conjuring yod wow He's conjuring Jehovah, who was the demiurge and, and in charge of the elements. And now I'm going to read our revised chapter 7, the Baal and Astarte mythos, and where we have dealt with this, this same situation in describing the mythos of King Solomon. Now, chapter 7, the Baal and Astarte mythos. By the alchemy of calcination, darkness through and will be gone. We light this fire of purification in the mystic name of Solomon. And this is from the Ordo Templi Astarte Summer Solstice Ritual. Now, this chapter is an edited version of an editorial from the Seventh Ray, Volume 2, Number 4, Old Number 8, Winter Solstice, 1973. And by the way, you can read that, that original chapter as it was originally written in the Seventh Ray Omnibus. We know we got all the old Seventh Rays and combined them in the Omnibus. But we've rewritten it for the, uh, the new edition of Solomon's Magic. Whether or not King Solomon ever studied and practiced the art of ceremonial magic is not a critical question. Of greater importance are the philosophical and psychological principles behind the legend of the monarch monarch magus who bound the two and seventy rebellious spirits in the vessel of brass. The multi-level implications of this Arabian folktale with its biblical origins, which was a major operative cosmology behind medieval ceremonial magic before the rise or the descent of the perverted Faustian school should be fascinating to Jungian and even Freudian psychologists. From a Kabbalistic standpoint, the 72 spirits of the traditional Goetia are a significant corollary to the 72 letters of the extended name of God, the Shemiham Farash from which the names of 72 angels can be derived, implying an inseparable duality of good and evil throughout entire celestial infernal pantheon. Considering this, in light of the macro, micro, macrocosm dogma, we are presented 
with the concept of 72 greater and lesser polar arc bipolar archetypes functioning in the collective and personal unconscious, the brass vessel, aside from its obvious Yanni symbolism, then represents the receptacle of the controlled and organized psyche. The rebellious spirits are summoned to appear by the power of the tetragrammaton, the ultimate cathexis, required to render service in accordance with their particular capabilities and then consigned to bondage in the brass vessel. Where they can cause no harm and from whence they can be readily called upon when needed. The psychotherapeutic analogy in the above is inescapable. We'll discuss the philosophical symbolism of the triangle of art, wherein such entities are commanded to appear in Appendix 7. This, then, is the crux of the Solomonic system of magic. Pride, passion, greed, and hatred cannot be divorced from their intrinsic counterparts, humility, purity, charity, and love. They can only be organized and controlled as essential factors of the balanced personality. A sophisticated, internalized concept that seems paradoxical with the popular image of the robed and hooded demonologist intoning his infernal conjurations. But why did the Arab doctors attribute this system to Solomon? And why do we... The foremost modern practitioners of it call ourselves the Order of the Temple of Astarte. Well, the answer to both questions can be found in the Bible. Kings chapter 11, we read that Solomon followed Ashtaroth, the goddess Astarte, the abomination of the Sidonians. When this chapter was written, we still accepted the Bible as it had come down to us, and we based our assumption that King Solomon ruled a nation of two religions— the pagan Israelites and the monotheistic Hebrews who were united only in the worship of a father God common to both. However, in the intervening years since this chapter first appeared in 1973, archaeology and biblical scholarship have established that if Solomon existed at all, he was a pagan king in an era before the Hebrew god Yahweh came on the scene. In fact, if the truth be known, the scriptures recounting Solomon's reign and the building of his temple were redacted during the Babylonian captivity by scribes in the employ of the patriarch Ezra and his patron, King Cyrus. Solomon's god, Elion, was replaced by Yahweh in the Torah, but not in actual history. And yet, scripture, no matter how corrupt, creates its own reality. And having made this disclaimer, we will leave this account of King Solomon and, and the Baal Ashtart mythos as we originally wrote it. The biblical account, in a broader perspective, we realize that the patriarchal Levite sect of Yahweh was in constant bitter conflict with the Baal Ashtart cult of Canaan. Now it should be understood that the religion of Moses was a sect derived from the same mythos as its rival. Abraham, a Babylonian of Ur, had been blessed by Melchizedek, the Canaanite king of Jerusalem, and a priest of El, the Most High God. Now, this is Genesis chapter 14. God, the same El, was the father of Baal and Astarte. In Babylon, El was called Anu and was father of Ishtar. Space does not permit us 
speculation on all the factors that aided the growth of the austere religion of Yahweh. But the hard, nomadic, ethnocentric life of the Hebrews was certainly one of the foremost. When this wandering branch of the Amorite people returned home to Canaan, they began the transition from pastoral tribesmen to agriculturalists and urbanists. Before the time of Saul and David, the religious battle lines were drawn. Joshua's attempted genocide of the Canaanites had not been successful, and they still abounded in the land. The new farmers were naturally attracted to the nature-oriented intensification rituals of Baal, and their newly urbanized brethren were fascinated with the sensual glamour of Astarte's Dionysian rites. It was probably at this point that the first puritanical blue laws of Orthodox Judaism appeared. Now, during the empire of Solomon, the socio-economic transition was complete, but the religious conflict had not resulted in a synthesis. Instead, we look back on two spiritually unbalanced cults fighting for supremacy, the transvestite priest of Astarte finding final exaltation and publicly castrating himself is hardly more odious than the Levite priest demanding a young woman be stoned to death for adultery or exacting a ruinous judgment from a poor farmer struggling to save his precious harvest by working on the Sabbath. Was Solomon attempting, by his Catholic example, to bring about a mellow fusion of these separate cults of El's progeny into a pan-Semitic polymorphous monotheism similar to that of the Hindu religion in India? He may well have built the magnificent temple at Jerusalem, not only for the Levite Yahweh, but for the universal overgod of all the Semites. Why else would Hiram of Tyre, a pagan Phoenician, as had been Melchizedek, why did Hiram rejoice and say, Blessed be the Lord, before assisting Solomon to riddle it? And that's First Kings chapter 5. Why is Solomon's greatest Literary, the Song of Solomon, so pregnant with symbols of the goddess. And why did he construct conspicuous temples to her? Even the Levites conceded to the wisdom of Solomon. But if the above conjecture is true, they hardly understood how wise he really was. For in the celestial marriage of Baldastarte, ritually enacted by priest and priestess, we see a direct analogy to the Shiva Shakti Congress of the Tantric Adepts, a magical formula of considerable power, even in this faithless modern age. How much more awesome it must have been in the times when the sanctified celebrants of their congregation believed utterly in the truth of divine possession. One need only compare the great rite, ancient significance to the transformation miracle of the Paulian mass, an indirect and passive assumption of God form, to realize why the art of magic has been so feared and suppressed for so many centuries in the West. A solar cult that castrates its God and transforms it, his bride into a virgin mother cannot compete magically with a virile and fertile Saltaramethos. Even though the Tholians adapted pagan festivals, embraced anthropomorphism, and their system has no direct creative link 
with the deepest and most basic forces that energize humans and nature. And like the Levites, theirs is a religion of thou shalt not. And high on the list of thou shalt nots is the practice of magic. We should perhaps digress, caution the casual reader against assuming from the above that the Ordo Templi Astartes is anti-Christian. We have the deepest respect for the teachings of the Master Jesus, and we are only critical of Paul's interpretation of them. The knowledgeable may choose to renounce Jesus as a creation of Paul, but the wise do not. Not only would such a renunciation be injurious to the personal egregore, it is historically unjustified. Jesus never claimed he was a god and should not be blamed for the acts of those who posthumously deified him. A study of elementary Kabbalah will quickly resolve any difficulties in understanding this Rosicrucian view and lead the student to a full grasp of the significance of what the Master did say. I am the Son of Man. Further, study and meditation may even lead to a revelation of the link between Jesus and Melchizedek. But to return to our subject, a convincing argument for the actual existence of a Solomonic proto-magical tradition such as we have described above, found in the Song of Solomon itself, wherein the mysterious Shulamite Christ declares, I charge you, O daughters of, it, of Jerusalem, stir not up nor awake my love until he please. This psalm may well be a hymn to the Queen of Heaven. Perhaps it is the culture memory of that magical religion Solomon tried to create that comes down to us in the ancient system of thaumaturgy and theurgy the Arabians attributed to him. The essential polymorphism of magic with its rich pantheon of Phoenician, Babylonian, and Egyptian entities as personalized male and female aspects of the Tetragrammaton and all-pervading transsexual life force, moral only in its impersonal harmony, and far more elish in conception than the patriarchal and paternal god of Moses. It might be considered a cosmic joke that the great El survived only as one of the many names attributed to his nomadic stepson and his daughter, the fair Astarte was transformed into Asherah, a male demon with bad breath. In the words of Kayam, out of context, many a cup of this forbidden wine will drown the memory of that insolence. And Solomon's magic is indeed a forbidden wine. The Judeo-Paulian equation, sex equals evil equals sex, was inculcated in scripture, not from the dread of a distant hell, the Hebrews did not even have a concept of hell, but from fear of the cult of Astarte and the lure of its courtesans. And as Wilhelm Reich theorized and later Soviet social experiments proved, the power of authoritarianism depends largely on its ability to channel sexual drives of its subjects. The ancient pagan establishment maintained such control by sanctifying the sex acts with its official priestesses while the Hebrews, later the Paulians, and finally the communists decided to make a sin out of it. And needless to say, both extremes are insults to freedom and dignity. And as a corollary to this sexual negation, the Hebrew and later Muslim prohibition against graven images, especially anthropomorphic ones, 
was not imposed from any desire to promote a concept of pure monotheism, as is usually supposed, but rather to restrict the practice of magic, which depends on such visual links to function effectively. As a pragmatic compromise, the Paulians dangled the anthropomorphic carrots of angelic and saintly icons before their pagan converts. For this dubious reason, the so-called Christian Kabbalah was more magical than its non-visual Hebrew antecedent, explaining its evolution into the hermetic system we practice today. Romantically, we may speculate that this ancient religion of Solomon's may well have evolved in a manner that the old sage honor intended. If he was the first Magus, he may have envisioned the secret tradition sought only by the wise, which would penetrate the truth of what he had discovered, that the spirit of the divine providence within us has many faces, good and evil, male and female, all reflected in the multifaceted jewel of the macrocosm. While in the macrocosm, we are all one. Perhaps he even understood the arcanum of the celestial marriage with its ultimate formula. In your temple, you are one with the gods. Now let me read the notes on chapter 7. Archaeology finds no evidence for Joshua's concept of the promised land. So it is reasonable to conclude that the conquest was another of Ezra's attempts to rewrite history. In this case, to intimidate the Israelites into believing that the house of David had always served Yahweh, and that the second temple of the Babylonian Judeans in Jerusalem would be the center of religious and political rule over all Israel in Yahweh's name. Below is our original note covering this issue. The Bible history of this period was written by the Levites to favor Yahweh as the one and only true God. Actually, he was their one and only tribal God whom they, like all Bedouin tribes of that era, had carried with them in a sacred box. Idris Shah recounts that there were 360 of these tribal gods set up in a great circle inside the Kaaba at Mecca in the days before Muhammad chucked them all out and dedicated the temple to Allah. And Allah, El equals the left Lamed, the prototype of Allah. We should also note that the ancient... Semitic nobility dedicated themselves to higher divinities than the common people. Thus, Hiram of Tyre and Solomon could both have been devotees of El, leading to the cooperation in building the great central temple that would have spiritually united their peoples. In line with this, we should also recall 10 northern lost tribes of Israel preferred El over YHVH as their most high god. And even after the conquest of Canaan, in, in this custom, they were following the tradition of Melchizedek in times before Moses. Christians should ponder the Bible passage in Hebrew, chapter 6, volume 20, and ask themselves, whose God are they worshiping? And then the last note, and again, we've left this paragraph as originally written, because it shows that even in 1972, we were evolving toward Rosicrucianism. We had just discovered the Nicene document that connected Jesus to the ancient succession of pagan dying gods, and we realized that we were following that path. By the 21st century, we have established our Rosicrucian degrees 
And our patron god and goddess, Baal and Astarte, had evolved into Jesus and Mary Magdalene. See the Hermetic Yoga Beyond the Middle Pillar, Volume 2, Rosicrucian Yoga. Now, one of the additions, one of the additions we have made, which is going to really, really appeal to a lot of uh, uh, people out there who've been using the Book of Solomon's Magic and the video, is a goetic ritual operational outline. And this was suggested to us by one of our one of our recent second degree members, Frater Agnosto. We call him Wally. He said this that the goetic ritual is very very confusing, and the septogram ritual is confusing. And what we need is it was an outline, and if you could establish that and straighten out this confusion about the septogram ritual, we would it would be really good. So, taking Wally's suggestion. That's what we did, and this is the operational outline. Because of problems created when Ezra and his Deuteronomists rewrote the Old Testament, the Gnostic Christian Hermetic Kabbalah and the Yahweh's Hermetic Kabbalah is spelled Q-A-B-A-L-A-H, and the Yahweh's Kabbalah, K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H, did not agree on all points. Goetic spirits, many of them fallen angels, do not reside in the cliffhot. Rather, they are consigned to Tartarus of the classical mythology. And they are all summoned through Yasod, the sphere of the moon, which is the sphere of memory and the mirror of all the higher spheres. Thus, each Goetic spirit retains its planetary sphere of origin. For example, Ashtaroth equals Netzach equals Venus within Yasod, and they should be called from their original home. Complicates the opening separate septogram ritual, and we hope this outline will make the procedure clear so it may flow smoothly for you. So here's how it goes in sequence. One, in the Adidim or common room adjacent to the temple, the operator or magus leads in the master ritual, expands the sphere of Yasod, and then continues up to the sphere of the working, for example, Metzah. The Magus leads participants into the temple, and two, the temple's open to due form. Three, the invoking pentagram, the deacon or the Magus has the opening pentagram, and of course, if it's a solo operation, the operator will do it. And four, the operator or the Magus facing east repeats the master ritual, emphasizing Yasod and the sphere of the working within Yasod, Exemplified here is Netzach. Three, he does the septogram ritual for all four quarters. Namagas traces the septogram saying, Arita, and invoking Yasod by tracing the lunar crescent as he says, Shaddai Okai. This done to all four quarters, east, south, west, north, Namagas declares, in the name of the Archangel Gabriel and the Archangel Hanael, I declare that the sphere of Yasod and the sphere of Netzach within Yasod is hereby opened and unsealed. Aum. Six. Six is the circumambulation. Amagus says, let the mystic circumambulation begin. Seven turns Widdershins in the sphere of Netzach of Yasod. A drum is used to establish a hypnotic pace. The vowel chant begins. Amagus or another should ring the bell at each full circuit. At the seventh, for Netzach, a sharp sound of the drumbeat stops the march, 
and all step into the circle. Number seven, the Magus recites the Bornless Invocation as participants set up for the operation. Number eight, the Magus checks everything. Breeze pencil sigil drawn on the mirror. Lamem of the spirit hung on the neck of the receiver. Evocation candles held by the receiver. Sigil of the spirit in the brass vessel to be viewed by the receiver. The ring on the operator's Magus's or the Magus's left ring finger. The receiver's viewing position so reflection is clearly visible. And number nine, you light the candles in the receiver's hands and begin the operation. Show the receiver the spirit sigil, and then show the Shemiham Farash sigil on the reverse side. Read the Latin Shemiham Farash invocation as the receiver focuses on the mirror and on their own reflection. Amagus recites the invocation until a presence is obtained. Greet the spirit and offer apologies. Ask the spirit through the receiver what you desire. And when finished, the Magus gives the license to the park and turns the lament about on the receiver's neck so that it no longer faces the mirror, showing the secret seal upon the reverse side of the lament. It should be showing the pentagram on the... Uh, that's a correction we have to make. Now showing the pentagram upon the reverse side of the lament. Closing the septogram, and no master ritual is necessary. The Magus traces the septogram saying, Arita. And in the names of the Archangel Gabriel and Haniel, I declare that the spirit of the sword and the spirit of Netzach within the sword are hereby closed and sealed. Om. The closing pentagram ritual, and you close the temple in due form. That's the outline. And if you follow that outline, you can't go wrong. Now, I'd like to discuss something. I, I know that... Um, that the green man, the Ent, wanted us to do something on Jewish Kabbalah. And actually, what we've done here is we've done a great deal to correct Jewish Kabbalah in relation to the Galatia. Now, point of fact, this rewrite, Ezra's rewrite of the Bible, has affected all of us, even uh, Valentine, the creator of, of uh, Gnostic Christian uh, Christianity, of course, at the time he was he was running for pope in Rome, and and was almost elected pope in Rome. But at, so at the time he conceded Jehovah was in fact the demiurge. That's a pretty standard Gnostic view. At the same time, he he didn't find anything evil in Jehovah. In fact, he uh, he even said that Jesus had two fathers. El and, and Jehovah. El was his spiritual father, and Jehovah was the elemental father. So what we've been trying to do, because the Galatia is a Gnostic Christian grimoire. It is. The spirits are consigned to Tartarus. They are not consigned to the Cliffhut. A Hebrew spiritual garbage dump. And, in fact, I think it was, the whole cliff, I think, was created by the Sabbateans. But, uh, essentially... Solomon's religion was akin to classical paganism. And actually, even the uh, Yahwehists, they, they realize what I'm talking about. So, Green Man, what I want you to do, and to answer your question about Jewish Kabbalah, I want you to get a copy, if you don't already have one, of Ira Kaplan's Separate Zero. And I want you to read the third chapter, and I want you to study it. Because what Ira Kaplan has in there is the Gollum secret. He calls it a great mystical secret. It's it's the Gollum formula. 
And this was the original tetragrammaton. For the 22-letter alphabet, the original tetragrammaton is Shamaata. And for their extended 24-letter alphabet, it's Samasha'u. Now, both of those formulas are in Kaplan's book in that third chapter. The Sevri of Zero is the, is the foundation of the Kabbalah. And whether you want to accept uh, Kaplan's version. But I made a terrible mistake when, when I got started in the OTA way back in 1970. I thought all Sevri of Zeros were basically alike. They're not. And the Severian Zero finds the spheres and the paths of the Tree of Life. They're all derived from the Severian Zero. Now, if you don't have the right one, your magic is going to be really skewed. And the Golden Dawn came up with the right version. Now, Agrippa, you you know, just I've, I've just been rereading rereading Agrippa and discovered that Agrippa had had a had a screwed up Severian Zero. In, but in volume one, the end of volume one, that that Severian zero, that arrangement of Agrippa's is terrible. If you if you use that, you're going to be totally fouled up. And I got as an Isidore Kalisha's version because Manley Hall liked it, and I thought, well, if Manley Hall likes it, it's got to be good. And I started using that, and then I just discovered it's completely different. Golden Dawn's completely different. Now Crowley made an asinine statement, and Crowley was a genius, but in this particular case, he made an asinine statement. He said, the Golden Dawn swore me to horrendous oaths not to reveal the secrets, and then they gave me their version of the Severi Azura, as if that was some kind of stupid thing. It wasn't stupid, because their version of the Severi Azura was then and is now still the greatest magical secret of all. All the correspondences, the paths and the spheres, come from that golden dawn, and theirs was arranged from Eliphas Levy, the French the French Magus. And Eliphas Levy was a great romantic and jumped to a lot of conclusions, but in this case, he really did, did some very intuitive work. So I want to encourage you, especially especially Green Man, I want you to encourage you to get that every zero and the rest of you. And also something else that I want to explain. I, people are having difficulty. They're having difficulty understanding the, the dimensions, the different dimensions of the tree of life. They don't understand that all of these dimensions, you know, Asaluth at the top and Bria and Yazura and Ashia, these four worlds are in all phases of the tree of life. Every sphere has the whole tree in it. And Every one of these dimensions has the whole tree in it. Has, these dimensions are all interpenetrating. And the way to, to re remember this, Kabbalistically, is the Adam Kadman. The Adam Kadman, the holy man. And just think of the tree of life is a person. It's a man. And it's been, they've, they've made it very hard. Some of these people, been, including... Uh, including some of the very fine Kabbalists. I think it's the one thing, the one issue I have with Leonora Lee is that they try to put the chakras out on the shoulders and on the hips and all of that so they can get all three pillars. Don't do that. Follow the lightning flash. You go right straight down the spine and follow the lightning flash, and you can have the, the Western psychic center system, the Western yoga system, 
that Johann Gichtel and, and Jacob Worm had and, and Robert Flood had and used that with the Kabbalah. But Adam Cadman, the holy man, that is the key to understanding these these dimensions. Because, you know, the divine dimension, Hatzaluth, the angelic dimension, Buya, and the spirit dimension, the astral plane, Yazira, uh, and the physical realm, Malkuth, and Ashia, they are all together and they all interpenetrate. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a problem with your magic. So please meditate upon that until you until you grok it. Okay. So look forward to the uh, new uh, second edition of Solomon's Magic, which we will have. We will have available in February. Next week, we will have to do another rerun, but we'll carefully select it, and it'll certainly be something worth your listening to. And meanwhile... Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and good magic. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.